Judges chapter 6. We'll begin by reading verses 1 through 13. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because of the Midianites. The children of Israel were made for themselves dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, the Midianites would come up, also the Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them, and they would destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza, leaving no sustenance, no food for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts, both they and their camels with without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel, who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hands of the Egyptians and the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Orpah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? And where are all of his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful for your word. So thankful as we think of human history and all the ebbs and flows, times of great spiritual awakenings and revival, and then also just times of spiritual decline, depravity abounding, suffering, poison of sin affecting all of society. Stand faithful through it all, speaking. And so, Lord, I pray today, pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would speak. Jesus, this is your church. You're the one who walks amongst the candlesticks. You're the one who examines each heart. Holy Spirit, you're here today. Bring conviction. Prune what needs to be pruned, Lord. Where there's pride, crush it, Lord. Where there's brokenness and despair, encouragement, Lord, bring that. Have your way with us today, Lord. 
Help me to hear you as I teach. Help us all to hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon while he threshes wheat in a wine press. So we have a couple of pictures just to make sure everybody knows what wheat looks like. I realize we're doing ministry in a city, so not everybody's seen a farm. But wheat is a very important crop as it's used to make bread, and it grows in a field like this. Wheat grain must be separated from its stock at harvest time. So you can see there at the top is like the straw stuff. At the bottom is the grain. The grain's what gets used to make the bread. And every once in a while, even today, you get a little piece of bread that has a big piece of straw in it. Yeah, the, well, it didn't get threshed very well. And so that little piece of straw didn't get separated from the grain. Now, traditionally... In olden times, we have machines that do it now, but in olden times, the threshing of wheat would happen by tossing it up in the air while you would stand on a hill, and then just kind of a light breeze would blow the, the chaff, the straws, and the stalks. It would sort of blow it away, but the heavier grain would just fall down in a pile, and you could kind of purify it that way as it was coming down to the ground. Now, Gideon had to modify his threshing technique he was doing the same procedure, but he was doing it down in a wine press. Now, a wine press was kind of like a shallow depression in the earth. You know, that's the place where you'd put the grapes and sort of stomp them to get the grape juice out of them. It was a lower place. And so to thresh wheat in a wine press was not an ideal situation. You might get a little breeze in there. But you can just imagine just the, the chaff of it, the straw just blowing around all around him. But he goes down there to do it in hiding because if the Midianites see him doing it on top of a hill, they'll just come still as wheat. So he's hiding down here in the wine press, tossing this stuff in the air. He probably had straw stuck in his hair, in his ears. It probably got under his clothes. It was poking him, itching him. He might have had some of it stuck up his nose. And then all of a sudden, this angel appears, the angel of the Lord, and he's just sitting comfortably, hanging out under a terebinth tree, watching Gideon look like a, a goofball with all this straw stuck everywhere all over him. And what does the angel of the Lord say to him? The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Another translation says, the Lord is with you. You mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, you courageous warrior. How does Gideon respond? Well, in verse 13, we find that Gideon questions God. He says, If the Lord's with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where are all the miracles that our parents and our grandparents told us about? Now, God's not with us. God has abandoned us. Okay, grown people. I'm going to speak to the grown people here in the room for a minute. You can decide what age grown people is. Grown people, have you ever met a young person who was questioning God? I've been ministering to incarcerated youth in the Boston youth prisons for the past 14 years. Some of them when they start to talk to me, are almost afraid to ask questions. 
And as they begin to talk, they'll say things like, I know I'm not supposed to question God, but why did God allow? And then you just fill in the blank. One of the guys I'm working with right now, when he was nine years old, he found his father dead in their apartment from an overdose. His mother is still actively using drugs. He and his brother were taken away by DCF custody. He's been in and out of programs ever since his father's death. He has questions. It's sad that responsible adults in the lives of many of these kids, particularly those who claim to have faith, have told them that they're not allowed to question God. Doesn't God allow Gideon to ask questions? How are we going to learn if we don't ask our questions? Let's not discourage young people from asking hard questions. Now, young people in the room, there are basically two types, two reasons why somebody questions God. Think of what they might be. Monique. Exactly. The first one is an honest questioner. An honest questioner has been taught things about God. They've read the Bible, and they look at their circumstance, and they say, wait a minute. This can't be true if what I'm facing today, how does this work? Because it doesn't match. You're saying this, but my life is this. That's an honest question. We don't want people to go around just being confused or not really believing the word. The word of God says what it says. God's not afraid of that. There is a second type of questioner, though. The second type of questioner is somebody who really just wants an excuse to live however they want to live. And so they come up with some questions that are kind of unanswerable, and that just sort of allows them to go on doing what they want to do. One of the guys in the prison ministry who ultimately lived with me for a period of time, I met him when he was 17, he's now in his early 30s, and he would, uh, when he was living with me, he would make some dumb decisions. Anybody here ever made a dumb decision? Uh, yeah. So he'd make some dumb decisions, and I'd talk to him about it, and he'd say, you know, E, I'm just confused. Just confused. I'd say, that's okay. Let's read the Bible. Let's learn what God has to say about this situation, and then you don't have to be confused anymore. But as time went on, as years went on, sometimes he kept making the same Dumb decisions and getting into even worse trouble. And then I'd ask him about it, and he'd say, well, E, I'm just confused. And at one point, I had to say to him, you know, I think you kind of like being excused. I think you like an excuse. That way, no one can ever really hold you accountable for any decision you make because you always seem to be confused. Now, if you're an honest questioner, if you have honest questions, God will never turn you away. As we're about to see, he did not turn Gideon away. But if you're like the young man I just described, who'd prefer really not to know so he could just go on doing whatever he wanted, God will honor your request. He won't answer your questions. He'll leave you in the dark. But he'll still hold you accountable for your decisions. So a little background here. Whenever I work with a young person, I like to sit down with them. I like to find out their background. Everybody's got a different story, a different experience. So today, we're going to learn a little bit about Gideon's background. 
Gideon at that time would have been probably either a teenager or somebody in his early 20s. He's living at a time where it's been about 250 years since the children of Israel have escaped from the slavery of Egypt. They've come out of Egypt and they've entered the land of promise. Now, in our own United States national history, if we were to go back about 250 years, we'd think of a very familiar time that we just celebrated. July the 4th, 1776 is about 250 years ago where the original delegates from the 13 colonies signed the Declaration of Independence. So when we think about that in history, and you, you think of this story, Gideon looking back at these stories that he's been taught by his parents and his grandparents about these miracles of God, to him it's like ancient history. You know, it's similar to us, the distance between us and the time the pilgrims settled here. You know, it's like, we know it's history, but it's so far ago it just seems too far to really think of. And yet one thing about history, the distance in history doesn't make the facts of history any less true. God has done miracles in the generations of the past. He used men like Moses to part the Red Sea, to deliver the Israelites from the Egyptians who drowned in the same sea after they tried to chase the Israelites while they were escaping. He used men like Joshua to conquer giants in the promised land and deliver a land from the hand of idolaters and enemies of God into the hands of the faithful. Now, there they were once again in Gideon's day, oppressed, just like they were in Egypt, and Gideon's trying to understand why. And yet God was faithful to send a prophet who could explain the reason why the age of the miraculous seemed to have vanished into the past. We have that, we can put that on the projection, but it's also in your Bibles, Judges chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. And the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel, who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Back to Gideon's questioning. Gideon was an honest questioner. He wasn't looking for an excuse to live however he wanted. He really wanted to know, and he was really frustrated that we, he saw in his life didn't match with what he was taught about the life of God. How does God answer Gideon's question? Well, let's look at verse 14. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Or as the New Living Translation says, I am sending you. Now, <clears throat> did God answer Gideon's question in the statement? Some people are saying yes. He said he's going to use him, but he didn't explain anything. 
Isn't this more of a command? Yeah, it's a command. It's not really an answer yet. God gives Gideon a command instead of an answer. Now, God will eventually answer Gideon's question, as we will soon see, but first God gives Gideon a command to test what kind of a questioner is he really. If Gideon's an honest questioner who genuinely wants to know, then he'll obey, obey God, and in the process of doing what God asked him to do, he will find the answers he desires. But if he was just questioning God just to feel justified in living however he wants, he won't even consider obeying God, and therefore he will go on not ever having his question answered, which is fine really since he really didn't want the question answered in the first place. But as we see, Gideon is an honest questioner and he chooses to obey God and he finds the answers he's looking for. So we're going to read this story, how the story ends, so that we can see before we go back to the beginning to figure out a little more about the whys. But let's see how God eventually answers Gideon's question. So let's turn towards the end of chapter 6, and I'll start reading in verse 33. So you'll need your Bible in hand, because we're going to be reading several passages. Judges chapter 6 and verse 33. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east gathered together and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. That would be an area right next to Gideon. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then Gideon blew the trumpet and the Bezerites gathered behind him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, those are some of his neighboring Israelite countries, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, and they all came up to meet them. Now, skip down. Chapter 7, we'll pick up in verse 1. Then Gideon and all the people who were with him rose up early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Moriah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. But then the Lord said to Gideon, nope, that's still too many, bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And if whoever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same will not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps water, who drinks water, uh, sorry, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300. But to the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. And deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go 
every man to his place. What kind of answer to a question is this? What was Gideon's question? Isn't it, where are the miracles? Where are the miracles, God? He says, okay, you want to see miracles? We have to prune some people away from you. How about you and 300 people against an entire hoarding nation? Do you want the answer to your question? Gideon wanted it. He was a little nervous about it, but God's doing what God's doing. Skip down to verse 19, and we'll see how Gideon and these 300 men respond. Chapter 7, verse 19. So Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the outpost at the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they posted the watch. And they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets, broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hand for blowing. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and Gideon, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp and the whole army, that's the enemy army, ran and cried out and fled meaning ran away. When the 300 men blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword, and now he's talking about the enemy's sword, against his companions throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to Beth Acacia toward Zerah as far as the border of Abel, Mahola by Tabath. So here's this massive hoarding army of the Midianites, and they hear these 300 men on the hills blowing trumpets with their torches. And the Lord just brings a spirit of confusion on their enemies. And literally, standing on the edges of these hills, they watch the Midianites slaughter each other. And they stand back and see the power of God to deliver them. God wanted to show Gideon what he was capable of. Not what Gideon was capable of. He wanted to show him what God was capable of. So then, did Gideon get his question answered? Let's look at that in verse 13, chapter 6 again. Back to the beginning of our story. Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Well, part of the question is answered. Where did the miracles go? Well, the miracles came back again. The miracles showed back up again in Gideon's life. And deliverance happened again. God had not forsaken his people. He got to see all of that. But there's still a little question that's unresolved. Anybody know what it is? I guess the question would be why? Why did it get to this level to begin with? You know, it had been 250 years since the days of Moses and Joshua where God had worked these mighty miracles that he learned about as a kid going up into the Jewish version of Sunday school? What happened in the generations from Gideon all the way back to, you know, from Moses and Joshua all the way up to Gideon? 
What was going on during that time period where the people were no longer seeing the hand of God and where they ultimately became slaves again, dwelling in their own land? Well, to find the answer to that question, we have to consider this initial interaction with the angel of the Lord that Gideon had back in that wine press while he was threshing wheat. So let's read that. Chapter 6, start at verse 14. It says, Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as if you were one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, remember this is before this battle even took place, Gideon says to the angel, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Then Gideon says, Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering. Set it before you. And he said, the angel said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat, unleavened bread from an ephah flour, the meat he put in a basket, he put the broth in a pot, he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them there. The angel of God said to him, take the meat, the unleavened bread, and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth on top of it. And so Gideon did so. In verse 21 it says, and the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand, touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. First miracle Gideon gets to observe happens here. Gideon asked for a sign to confirm that the Lord would be with him in his calling to save Israel. But notice what Gideon does here. He first brings an offering. What offering did Gideon bring before the Lord? Well, he ended up bringing food. What's the big deal about food? Well, food was the thing they were in shortest supply of. Remember, they were starving. They become destitute because the Midianites were stealing everything from them. That the angel of the Lord waited while Gideon went to prepare his sacrifice. Notice Gideon didn't just run home and grab some ham out of the refrigerator or some crackers out of the cabinet. He had to go home. He had to kill a young goat. He had to prepare it and cook it. Then he had to make bread from probably the last remnants of flour he could find in the house. He prepared a broth. And then he carries this hot meal back to the angel of the Lord. And all the process probably took quite some time. The angel of the Lord was willing to wait. Why? Because he knew that Gideon was not delaying. How did the angel respond to Gideon's offering? Gideon saw the power of God, symbolized by the fire from heaven which consumed the offering. 
he could see that that same power was available to him once his life was fully surrendered to God. Okay, young people. Some of you, like Gideon, have heard your parents, your grandparents, talk about the things of God. They may have shared with you times when God has answered prayers. But some of them, and I don't mean to offend, but some of them, not all of them, are similar to Gideon's parents. They're able to talk about experiences with God in the past, but they don't seem to know much about the power of God to deliver them and the struggles of the present. Why is that? Ultimately, that's the question that Gideon was answering, asking. Well, the answer is simple. Like Gideon, they had an experience with God, but instead of diligently preparing and bringing their sacrifice, they delayed, they got distracted, and they left the Lord waiting. As a result, they never experienced the fullness of what God had to offer them. Even worse, they rejected him, leaving him waiting there at the altar. Imagine if Gideon chose a different path. Imagine he went home to prepare the offering, but he got distracted. Maybe his friends were having a party, or you know, some girls started calling him, or I don't know, his friends were playing a game, or you know, maybe he's got to get to his money, get his business started, getting his academic goals achieved. I don't know, there could have been a lot of things, but imagine that he got distracted and delayed. He might have one day gone on to get married, have kids, have a house, have money, and maybe one day he might tell his kids about a time where the angel of the Lord appeared to him. He might have even shared a story like that at a testimony night. Wow, this angel appeared to him. Some people might even think he was spiritual because of the experience he had. And yet, if Gideon had done that, he would have been no different from his father's generation before him. The Apostle Paul warned Timothy about people like these. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. It'll be up on the projector. It says, They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. And he tells them, stay away from people like that. Fortunately, Gideon and the, for Gideon and the nation of Israel, Gideon did not delay in his offering. So now, the question is for you. What is the sacrifice that God is calling you to bring to him so that you can witness the power of God as Gideon did? Most of you in this room probably already know what it is. It's the thing that might feel the hardest to let go of. But for clarity, I like to uh, look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It's always a good passage to go to, to search your heart. Apostle Paul says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. 
Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. From this verse, we can discover three things of what the sacrifice looks like. Number one, your body. Jesus offered his, you can leave the verse up, Heather. Jesus offered his physical body on a cross. But before that, he offered his physical body to this life, to walk through the same temptations and trials that all of us face and more. And he walked through that sinlessly so that he could offer his righteousness to us. He goes to the cross where he's crucified and rejected, spills his blood to cleanse us and make us holy so that we can live in a relationship with God in spite of the fact that we have not been sinless or holy. And so the Apostle Paul in this passage declares, given what he's done for you, offer your body as a sacrifice. You know, the Bible says certain sins, in fact, it calls out sexual sin in particular, is a sin against your own body. There are other sins. It's not the only one. You can think of drug use or drunkenness that can devile the body. We must come to him with a willingness to learn how to let go of these sins if we want to see the power of God in the way Gideon did. Number two that you learn from this passage, I would describe it as your image or the way people see or perceive you. The desire to be accepted by our peers is a major force that drives us to copy the behaviors and customs of the world. You have to sacrifice this, caring more about how God sees you than how your friends and family see you. And number three, your mind. In the long run, the sustaining power of the gospel to change a person comes by changing the way we think. Emotions and feelings might get you started in the process of change, but ultimately, everyone who consistently grows in their faith and in the power of God does so by allowing... Uh, the word of God to transform the way they think into the way God thinks. Now, in order for this transformation to happen, you'll have to unplug from some carnal inputs in the world. Certain types of music, certain types of television or different things that could just be carnal. I mean, I could go infinitely on a list of apps. But instead, we need to plug into the scripture Spiritual music, books, and the like. So, we've learned quite a lot from Gideon's life. I'd like to point out to you, though, that once again, I'm telling you about something that happened so many years ago. Probably over 3,000 years ago. Now, that could sound like distant history. Did God still move like that? Does God still do things like that? Why should we think God would change? He doesn't get old like our grandparents who just get too tired to do things sometimes. God doesn't get old like that. Some of you may be aware that there's been a lot of people praying for revival. 
heard people talking about revival. There's even been groups in our church who've read books on revival and discussed the subject. What's revival? Revival is a time where it seems like God awakens nearly everyone at every level of society to first love God, and then secondarily, they begin loving their neighbors, and that transforms society. In history, you can kind of document the evidence that during these periods of revival, the prison's empty. It's hardly anyone getting locked up anymore because people aren't committing crimes anymore. Wars stop during these periods. Poverty starts to vanish as people share. Now, for many, the solution to society's problems is to plead with God to cause revival. We just need God. Will you please cause revival again? And I've made prayers, ask God to revive us. It's not an entirely unspiritual thing. But I'm going to challenge a little notion of this for a second. And I'll warn you, there's some godly men and women who might disagree with me. But I would ask you to consider it. Is it possible that God is always ready, always willing, and always eager to bring revival in every generation? Let's look at a few verses on this. I'm not just spouting out my own opinions. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. God speaking, Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Is God only pleased when the wicked turn from their ways and live in certain generations, but not others? Say that here. Let's go to another verse. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? Does that say that God only wants certain generations to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? It says all of them. Okay, let's try another one. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Did he say only certain generations to come to repentance? Does it say he ordains certain generations to perish? It's not what my Bible says. It says he wants everyone to come to repentance. Lastly, Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37, Jesus speaking. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her little chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Perhaps the problem of our present age isn't that God isn't willing to bring revival. Maybe the problem is we're not willing to be revived. That actually lines up better with what the scripture teaches. You know, I'm convinced that God's work of revival is always happening. And I say that because I feel like I regularly see the miraculous work of the Spirit of God in people's lives in the exact same way I see it in Gideon. Just the other night, Friday night, we were having a communion time. I know many of you were gathered at the communion time. And as we were praying, we were talking a little bit about the presence of God, and we were praying. A little girl who's about eight years old 
I talked to her after the service. She just began weeping. I said, tell me what happened. She said she prayed and she felt the presence of God so strong, she just didn't even know how to respond. She just started crying. She's like eight or nine years old. How does she understand this stuff? You think she read a theology book to figure that out? I don't think so. She might be smart, maybe. A couple months ago, I was talking with a young man outside in the food court. And, you know, just asking him, he was a you know, mid-level teenager, 15, 16, something like that, just curious about his experience with God. He tells me about a time, and his parents aren't saved, his mother doesn't go to church. Tells me about a time where he's in the back of a car, his mom's driving, I think he was around 12 or 13, and somehow it was as if Jesus just kind of confronted him in the backseat of the car, and he said he gave his life to the Lord. And when I first heard it, I thought, I don't know, this sounds a little bit weird. Then he goes on and says to me, he opens up to me about some personal struggles in his own life and just how desperately he wants to please God and he doesn't know how to overcome certain sins in his life. And he just, I was shocked. I've never seen a 15-year-old open up like that. What can I say? Is the angel of the Lord still showing up like he did in the days of Gideon? I mentioned earlier that I go into the youth prisons in Boston. Uh, about six weeks ago, a new young man came into uh, our particular facility where I minister at. He's about 17 years old. And he told me right away, I asked him if he wanted to come to our church group. He says, I'm Muslim. I said, okay, you're still welcome to come. And so the first time he sat down to talk with me, I have this homework program I do. He was interested in doing it. And one of the first questions in the initial homework is actually comes from a verse in the book of John where Jesus turns to his disciples and asks them, what do you want? Guess what he writes down under that? He says, I want to learn how I can atone for my sins. Where did you even hear a word like that, atone for your sins? And he just goes on about the weight that he's carrying. He says, when I was out there in the streets, I never thought about anything I'm doing, but I've been in here and just sitting here and it's just like it's so much, and I'm just trying to figure out how to atone. When he was a little kid living back in Jamaica, his grandfather was a pastor. And he left Jamaica, very young age, doesn't remember a whole lot of what was taught in the church. His father was in and out of prison. He was himself tossed the different homes to live in. And yet he's striving. That's why he converted to being a Muslim. He thought maybe he could atone for his sins better that way. We sat down and read Isaiah chapter 53, the prophecy of what Jesus' atoning work on the cross was. And after reading that passage, he says to me, he says, you know, it's not just the violent things I've done. Now I realized I turned away from Jesus. I never tried to make him not a Muslim. It just happened. You can't tell me that the angel of the Lord isn't showing up in people's lives, explaining things that I can't explain. God is still bringing revival. He's still doing it. The only question is, are we willing to be revived? Now, I have to say for me, and I'll label myself in one of the grown folks group, I still need revival in my life. And I've often thought, like of all the ministries I get to take part in and do, the last one I'd really want to give up is my, my ministry with the youth in the prisons. 
And the main reason is because I think God uses that to keep my soul revived more than what he does with the kids. I need to sit down and hear these stories. I need to know that God is still working miracles today. I love to sit down and talk to young people and just listen and hear. The Holy Spirit's already working. Our job as ministers is just to sort of get in line and find out how we can cooperate in some small way with what the Holy Spirit's already doing. And that's awesome. That revives my heart. Some of you older folks, maybe you need to re-experience some revival in your own soul. Guess what? We have lots of opportunities for you to meet some young people that the Lord is showing up to. Vacation Bible School. We have a massive children's ministry on the other side of this wall. Uh, two of the kids, I think, that I even brought those stories up, are actually over there being taught even as we speak. Kensington, a big part of Kensington, is working with the youth and they have a boxing ministry. I cannot wait to see how they do ministry with the inner city youth there in Kensington and to hear some of their stories and the way God's showing up in their life. If you want to have continual revival in your own soul, consider participating with young people because God loves bringing revivals in the youth. Now, a message to the young people. And I'll finish up here. Another little source of history. In 1904, so we've got to go back about 120 years ago, there was a revival in a little country called Wales. And it began in a prayer meeting where some young people, just like you, there they were in the prayer meeting. And in one prayer meeting, this revival began to spread throughout the entire country. And that hit kind of the national news because it was such a dramatic impact. People all over the world started traveling there so that they could experience the revival. Revival spread to several other countries, uh, notwithstanding the United States. In fact, two years later, there was something called the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles, California that gave birth to the modern Pentecostal movement. But this revival uh, started in a prayer meeting where a young man in his mid-twenties, prayed a very simple prayer. Not a long prayer, it was a very simple prayer. I'm going to put that up on the screen. Lord, bend me. What does that mean? Yeah, bend, exactly. Bend. What do you think he meant by that? Well, this young man had considered what revival was going to cost. He considered what the offering was, and he put his whole life on the altar and said to God, just bend me. Use me however you want. Whatever you want to take away, take it away. It's in your hands. He wanted to be for the glory of God. There went on to be, in many of these revival meetings, different messages preached, but there were basically four tenets that were taught in this revival. Number one, you can see them on the screen. Confess all known sin, receiving forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Okay? Remove anything in your life that you are in doubt or feel unsure about. And what they were meaning by this is things that might be sin or things that might distract you from God. Number three, be ready to obey the Holy Spirit instantly. Number four, 
publicly confess the Lord Jesus. Very simple, right? Same concept as Romans chapter 12. Same concept as giving Gideon, bringing his offering. Personally, I think these revivals, same stories that happen in revival times are happening every day. It's happened in some of you guys in this room today. Really, the only debate is a historical debate regarding the scale. How many people and how much of an impact does it have on society? God's miracles and his love are unchanging, though. His desire to dwell and manifest himself is the same today as it was in the days of Gideon. So what about you? Are you ready for a revival? Have you had an experience with the angel of the Lord left the Lord waiting? Have you gotten distracted from committing to him what you first promised? Maybe today is your first encounter with God. This is the first time you're thinking about the cross, how that transforms, just like the young man I described, how that atones for my sin so that I can go forth in the power of God. Whatever you do, this is my counsel to you, this is my plea with you, consider the third part of the revival tenets. Whatever the Holy Spirit tells you do, do it now. Do not go out those doors. Do not waste the second. You will get distracted. You'll lose sight of the power of God. And you'll just end up being like the parents of Gideon, pointing to some stories that everyone teaches, but not actually knowing or being able to behold the power of God in your life. Let's have the worship team come up. Prayer partners can come up. The so same principles today. You're going to have prayer partners up here. You can come publicly. Come pray with a prayer couple. Confess Jesus as Lord and receive him in prayer. Confess your sin. Don't hold on to sin. Receive forgiveness. Jesus is eager to forgive when we're ready to let go. Repent by removing anything in your life that's pulling you away from God. Do whatever the Holy Spirit is telling you to do immediately before leaving this room. Father God, I thank you. Thank you for this word. Thank you that you are unchanging. God, I cry out to you because I want to see revival. I want to continually live in a state of revival, Lord. My flesh is at war with that all the time. But I pray, Lord, bend me. Bend us. We want to know your power, not our own power, Lord. We've seen enough of human power. We want to see your power, God. Pray this in Jesus' name.